right. Now, I'm assuming it's agreeable that we make this a class. So I'm going to call you my class. Because this is more a lecture than it is a sermon. And I guess I better turn my mic on, right? Thank you. Is it on? Testing one, two, three. Is the mic on? Okay. Good. Well, we had part one this morning. There were several of you that are here tonight that weren't here this morning. I'm sorry, we can't re-preach that lesson. So we'll do a brief review, and then we're moving right ahead. And I have the expert tech man here to help me tonight to make this thing come alive. So, let's begin. Our theme is how we got our Bible, its origin, and specifically, can we trust the English Bibles that we have in our possession today? Which is such a blessing, because all of you were raised to speak English, were you not? So was I. I have lived in Holland when I was a little boy, and my father preached over there, and I learned Dutch as a kid. Don't ask me to speak in Dutch. It's long gone. We also moved to Romania in 1993, and I tried to learn that language at the age of 50, and it was miserable. That's the closest modern language to Latin, if you've had Latin. And so its grammar is horrendous. I'll give you one example. You want to speak something and you want to get the right ending for the word if it's an adjective or a noun. It has to be masculine, feminine, or neuter. Kids, you don't know how blessed you are in English not to have to worry with that. You have to put the right endings on words. And so for certain kinds of words, for a man, there's like eight or ten different endings just for that word. For neuter, there's like three or four. And for females, there's at least 16, of course. <laughs> Women are more complicated, generally speaking. So some language, the point about all this is there are lots of languages on earth. And you may not know there are still some languages spoken by a good number of people for which there is no Bible at all in their language. So translation of the Bible is still going on every day. And I would recommend you support that. Because I would like to think everybody on earth would have access to this most important book. Well, can we trust our English Bibles? And how did we get Bibles so available and usable today? You, you all know they were not written in English. They were written, well, we'll go through this. It's a long, fascinating story. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew and Aramaic. And the New Testament, written in Greek by about 40 different writers, over a period of some 1,600 years. So the Bible is not a book, is it? It is a book of books. 66 is the way we count it. But you probably know there are some Bibles that have more than 66 books. Did you know that? The Roman Catholic Bible has several other books in the Old Testament. We call them the Apocrypha. But they are found in some Bibles. And that's another whole topic which I'll let you all talk about. Oops, what did I do? I hit the wrong button, didn't I? Thank you. That's why you're there. All right, so let's go back through this. Here's a statement I want everybody to be reminded of. We mentioned it this morning. We do not possess any of the original autographs of either the Old or New Testaments. There is nowhere on earth you can go and see the original of anything in the Bible. I'm pausing to let that sink in. What we have, ladies and gentlemen, 
both here in English and in everything else that we have on earth somewhere, and the word for that is extant, it exists somewhere on earth, is copies of copies of copies of the Bible. And some of them translated into another language. So, can you not see why atheists might say, how can you trust a book when we don't have any of the originals? And that's a good question. And then add to that, how can you trust a book in English when it wasn't written in English and it was written thousands of years ago? You really think you can trust that for your soul's salvation? And believe me, that is said. So that's part of the reason for this discussion. How can we be confident that our English versions are trustworthy given that so much time has passed, so many things have happened, and given the difficulty of translating text from one language to another? This is review. That's a good question. So, so this morning we tried to broadly introduce this subject, and we made the point that most English versions that are trustworthy because my first answer to that question is, no, you should not trust all English versions. We're not doing that again. So which ones should you trust? Ones that are translated by a large committee of scholars from different backgrounds. Don't use an English translation translated by one man or by one group of people because it will have bias in it, period. Don't do that. Second, it's produced with the intent of giving the world an accurate word-for-word -word translation with the best available Greek and Hebrew texts. Very important. If it was written originally in Greek and Hebrew, let's at least get back that far and use the Greek and Hebrew in which it was written, of which we have many copies. All right. And here are the five that I recommended to you that meet all those standards. And I'll not mention those again. So there they are. But even these English versions present you with differences, as we showed you this morning. They differ from one another. And so why is that? How we it's because there have been some discoveries since some of those were translated that have affected how we translate. And the relative importance given to these by scholars. So we're tonight going to focus on the New Testament. The same kind of a study can and should be done for the Old Testament. But I don't have time to do that. So we're going to focus on the new. And I picked that because that's the law by which we live today. Old Testament's vitally important because you can't understand the new without it, can you? But we're going to focus on the new. There are variations in the text of our English versions in the New Testament because there are variations in the extant Greek manuscripts and ancient versions. And I want you to be aware, at least minimally, of those facts. What I'm trying to present to you, class, is the facts as we know them today in this topic. I think it's important for biblical students, which all of you are, to know these things, minimally at least. So let's talk now about some of these witnesses. I think it is accurate to say that the preservation of the Greek New Testament has three great witnesses. Three. The first are the manuscripts. And we said to you this morning, a manuscript is a handwritten document. 
Did you know, class, that no documents were not handwritten until the 1400s? You know that, right? Every book that was ever written prior to the 1400s was handwritten. That means somebody sat down, children. So parents, a lot of you are homeschooling, right? I want you to give your children an assignment. This is my assignment to your children. And I expect you to carry it out whenever you have your next class. I want you to make them sit down at a table in a very uncomfortable chair. No pillows. And sit at a table and give them a piece of, uh, it should be paper, I guess. It would be better if you could get them an animal skin. You probably don't have any of those hanging around your house. But in the old days, they would prepare animal skins so you could write on them, kids. And make them sit down and print capital letters, line after line after line. You decide. I'd say a whole page worth. Make them write it. And make them write it with a pen where you have to dip the pen in ink. Do y'all even have such a thing? <laughs> you can peel out a, that's a ballpoint pen right there. Let me see that. Can you believe that's one of the most amazing inventions? It automatically feeds the ink to a ballpoint. And you just write with it. That's not what they did. They dipped a pen in special ink and wrote capital letters. Line by line by line. That's your assignment. And it would be better if you made them do it in Greek. I'm kidding. <laughs> but at the very least, make them write it in English in capital letters. All right. Here are some of the most famous manuscripts that we have in our possession. Ryland's is a little scrap of paper. It's really what it is. And then these three, Vatican, Sinaitic, and Alexandrian, are the three most important, precious documents, copies of the, the Bible on the face of the earth. And we're going to talk a little bit about these later. I want to tell you a little par a parallel here. With most ancient books that date back to the first century or earlier, we don't have the originals. So that's not new for the Bible. You don't have the originals for hardly anything that's that old. Why? Because they don't last. You know, if they're written on papyrus, papyrus things, you don't have the originals. So here's an example. Livy's History of Rome was written in the first century. We have 20 copies of that manuscript. We have 20 manuscripts. None of them are originals. The earliest one dates to 500 years after Livy lived. Are you with me? Please nod your head so I know you're with me. I don't allow sleeping in my class. 20 copies. The, oldest, the earliest one is 500 years after Livy. That's typical. Caesar's Gallic Wars was written in the first century. We have 10 manuscripts of that in our possession somewhere on earth. The earliest one is 900 years after Caesar wrote it. That's normal. And of course they use these and everybody talks about Caesar's Gallic Wars. This, is, this really happened. Well, it did really happen. And then Tacitus wrote his famous Annals, History in the First Century. We have two manuscripts of that. The earliest one is 800 years later. 
That's typical for old things. What about the Bible? How about the New Testament? There are 5,795 plus manuscripts of the New Testament, partial or complete. And the earliest one dates within 40 years of when it was written. You see? What I'm telling you is the Bible is the most well-preserved book on the face of the earth by a light year, even in the same ballpark. Why is that important? Because those manuscripts are the foundation on which we can know that we have what God wants. None of them are originals. They're all copies. But there's almost 6,000 of them. And they go back to the earliest of times. So here's the point. We can take these 5,795 plus manuscripts and compare them with each other and ensure what the original text was, even though we don't have the original. If you have that many copies, you can be very confident that you have what was in the original. There's not another text in all of history. It's even in the same light year. And so when God chose to preserve his word, he preserved it marvelously compared to anything else that's ever been written in the history of mankind. And by the way, if you're not aware, the Bible is still the biggest selling book ever, always is, every single year. There is no book to compare with it. Now, that's why we had him read 1 Peter 1. What was the promise in 1 Peter 1? The word of the Lord endures forever, even after multiple efforts through the centuries to try to eliminate it from the face of the earth. Hasn't happened, nor will it, because it's only getting worse for those who are trying to eliminate it. All right, so back to this now. The three great witnesses are the first, the manuscripts, and I'm going to say more about those in a minute. But second, there are also a many versions. Now, class, you need to get this because a manuscript in this study of textual criticism means a handwritten copy in the original language. That's what it means. A version is a handwritten copy in a different language. Did you know that there are lots of ancient versions of the Bible also? Like, for example, the old Syriac. Somebody tell me in this class a church in Syria in the first century. Name it. Just say it. In Syria, I'll give you a hint. This church is known for sending out the Apostle Paul on missionary journeys. What's the name of it? Antioch. Antioch was one of the most important churches in the first century. You read about it in the book of Acts, don't you? A lot. Well, there was a church in Antioch early on, and in Antioch they spoke Syriac, not necessarily Greek. Now, some of them spoke Greek, but they spoke Syriac. So it's perfectly reasonable that the early New Testament was translated into Syriac early on. So there is an ancient Syriac version that dates to the 100s, second century. There's the old Latin, dates way back. There's a Coptic version that's related to Ethiopia. I believe the eunuch was reading a Coptic version of the book of Isaiah. And by the way, you can go see that in a museum in the program. I don't know if you can see the one he was reading, 
but you can see an ancient scroll of the book of Isaiah in that library or that uh, museum in East Berlin. Look, that ought to be on your bucket list. If you ever get a chance, you need to go to Berlin and visit the Pergamon Museum and the Boda Museum. And in the Boda Museum, you're going to find a Coptic scroll of the book of Isaiah that dates back to the first century. In my mind, I stand there and my heart just... <laughs> the Vulgate. So there's lots of ancient versions. That's different than a manuscript because it's in a different language, but it's still a Bible. And it's still handwritten on the same kind of pages that we talked about. But there's a third great witness in addition to those, and that's the early church leaders. We call them the church fathers. There were Syriac, Greek, Coptic, and Latin church fathers in the early days, first and second century. And they wrote letters to each other, handwritten. And so you and I are friends. We're both church fathers. And I'm writing you a letter, and I say, Dear brother, according to 1 Timothy 3, you know, and then I quote 1 Timothy 3, and then I write my letter a little more, and then I quote another scripture, and then I quote another one. And you write me back and quote me 16 scriptures and your letter back to me. And there are books containing the writings of the church fathers. And it is said that you could reproduce the entire New Testament from their quotations of the New Testament in their writings. So you have three witnesses to the text of the New Testament. That's powerful. So extensive are the citations that if all other sources for our knowledge of the text of the New Testament were destroyed, they, that is the citations of the early Christian writers, would be sufficient alone for the reconstruction of practically the entire New Testament, says Bruce Metzger, a textual scholar on the text of the New Testament. So those are your three witnesses, class. The Bible has more textual support than any other book in the universe. And here are some of those manuscripts. So kids, you have an assignment, right? I want you to sit down and write something like this. You see how they're all capital letters? That's a scrap of one of those uh, manuscripts. So let me do something with you here. Let's do it in English. So there's a sentence in English. I want you to read it, not out loud, but see if you can read that. David, you want to read it for me? Just do your best. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to... Gal Tob. No. <laughs> called to... Be... Be... Be an. Be an apostle. Now what you need to understand is the original manuscripts, that's how they were written. Every letter was capitalized and they were all run together. No capital, I mean no uh, punctuation, no verses, no paragraphs, just a bunch of words strung together. Every space was important. No spaces. And that's what you had to read. And I want to remind you from this morning. You remember we talked about the eunuch in his chariot reading a scroll? That's what he had to read. In Greek, 
probably in his case Coptic. But that's what it looked like on an animal scan as he's riding in a chariot. Right? Did the man want to know what God said? So you can read it, but it's not easy. But that's how they did it. And all of those unseals, the word unseal means capital. So the original and the most ancient copies of the Bible are all capitals. They're the unseals. The most important copies of the Bible. Later came along the cursives, also called minuscules. Can you see they look more like script writing? And they use capitals and small letters. But that didn't come along till later. They have smaller levels, letters that are cursive, and they date from the 9th century. The earliest cursives are not till the 800s. So they're important, but they're not as important as the manuscript, I mean the uh, unsealed, because they're more ancient, closer to the original. And there are about 2,800 of these extant, the last I heard. But this changes, folks, because people are finding new stuff all the time. So there's about 2,800 of those located somewhere on earth. That's what extant means. You can go somewhere and see it. The most important of those unseals I've already mentioned to you are these. They're the oldest vellum manuscripts. Anybody know what vellum means? What's vellum? And in, case of, in this case, it's animal skin. Usually it's a young calf that they would kill that stretched their skin, and it's a long, tedious story. That'd be another great assignment for homeschoolers, is how did they make animal skins to make paint? certain cities on earth that were known for producing vellum. <coughs> so these are the oldest vellum manuscripts that anybody has, and they date back to the three and four hundreds. It's about 200 years after Christ lived, 250. Alexandrinus, Vaticanus, located where? It's in the Vatican, still today. And then Sinaiticus, anybody know where that's located on earth today? It's in the British Museum, uh, the British Library actually now, in London. You can go see it. That's another bucket list. These all contain almost complete copies of the New Testament, and the most complete one is Sinaiticus. They have very few things missing. And almost all of the Old Testament as well. However, class, the Old Testament is written in Greek, and that's not, that's not the original language of the Old Testament, is it? The original language of the Old Testament is Hebrew and Aramaic. In these copies, it's all in Greek. So the Greek Old Testament for those three are the, what's the version that was translated? Anybody remember the name of it into Greek, the Old Testament? The Septuagint version. That's what you have in these ancient copies, in the Old Testament. So for the Old Testament, it's a version. For the New Testament, it's a manuscript. Got it? But it's almost the entire Bible. I mean, folks, that's a treasure that dates back to the 300s. It's amazing. 
And so we want to focus in on these just a little bit. Here's the Alexanderness. Look at, see how beautiful that writing is? Now, children, that's what I want yours to look like when you get finished. You see how beautiful that writing is? They wrote every letter like that. Every letter. I want you to get this, class. The reason you have a Bible in your hands is because a bunch of people did that. Imagine spending your whole day at a table writing letter after letter. That's what they did. And look, kids, they knew what they were writing so well that if they got to the middle of the page and they weren't on the right letter, they knew something was wrong. And in some instances, their boss would come in and say, throw it away. And you know what that means? Start over at the top and do it again. There were no Xerox machines. Are you kidding? If you throw it away, you're starting over completely. I want you to be absolutely overwhelmed with what men have done. It was mostly men back in those days. In fact, I guess it was all men in the early days, who did this day after day after day. Unbelievable. So this was two columns of carefully scripted words, letters, all capitals. Here's the Vaticanus. It's three columns. And it's absolutely stunningly beautiful writing. And then... Sinaiticus is four columns. Don't ask me why they had two and some and three and some and four and another one. I don't know. Write it all out. One whole page. Just make them do one page. They'll be so sick of that by the time they get finished. And no, that's right. It's got to be straight. Can you believe this? You think you can handwrite that? I doubt it. I doubt there's a person in this room that could do that. It's almost perfect. A scribe was a very important person. All right. I want to take just a moment here. Now, that's why I was asking her about time. Can you flip over now to the interesting thing? Let me go back to this. Codex Sinaiticus. Folks, that was not discovered until the 1800s. You listening to me? The 1800s is when this was uncovered. It was discovered at the monastery at the foot of Mount Sinai called Catherine's Monastery by a very famous German gentleman named Konstantin von Tischendorf. Okay, would you like to say that with me? Probably not. Konstantin von Tischendorf is a name you need to learn. So that's your assignment. <coughs> I want you to learn all about Konstantin von Tischendorf. By the way, you can do it right here on this website. Not all about it, but you'll learn a lot of interesting things. Because, folks, the Codex Sinaiticus, the book Sinaiticus, it's named that because of Mount Sinai. That's where it was found. Has been published on a website. The entire manuscript is there for you to look at. Incredible. That's only happened in the last 50 years. Prior to that, it's located, in fact, the 
copies of Sinaiticus are located in four different places on earth. And part of it is in the British Museum. The most part of it. Another part of it is in the University of Leipzig's library, which is where Konstantin von Tischendorf went to school. A third is in the St. Petersburg, Russia library, the Imperial Library of Russia. There's a long story behind that. And the fourth place is at the Monastery of St. Catherine's at the foot of Mount Sinai. They have a few pages. By the way, I'll just get off topic here just a little bit. Did you know, class, that in 1975 they found some more pages for Sinaiticus in the Monastery of St. Catherine's? 1975. They uncovered a part of that monastery that had gone through an earthquake that was made a big mess, and they got underneath it and found a bunch more pages. And so they kept those. They're not giving those away. So this will tell you the history. See where it says about Codex Sinaiticus? You can click on that and read the history of why all this happened the way it did. Fascinating. And if you like stories like Raiders of the Lost Ark where they were looking for the old ark, you remember? This is better. Because <laughs> this guy was a, I'm telling you, he was an adventurer. And he was out to get every manuscript he could find on the face of the earth that would support the text of the Bible. He was amazing. What's the guy's name in Raiders of the Lost Ark? Y'all remember? What's his name? Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones. <laughs> he was an archaeologist. This guy's better than Indiana Jones. All right. So that's one place you can go on that website. Another is you can look over there. It says, see the manuscript? Here's a piece of the manuscript. I've asked him to practice on this. Because you can click, you see up here, um, where is it, where you can turn to the Bible, there it is. You can click what book you want, what chapter you want, and what verse you want. Of course, none of that was in the manuscript, but that's the way we organize it. But you can get to the place you want by going up here and choosing your passage, and it will take you to the actual manuscript that has been digitized for that piece. And in addition to that class, you can go to the British Museum and see the original of that. It's there, physically. But what's nice is, it's now in your house. And you can click, 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 and you're there. So if you want to have some fascinating time, spend it at this website. All right, so what I've asked him to pull up here is Mark the 16th chapter. So look, this is the text of Mark 16 in this column. And it comes to here. And so you'll see the text coming along here. And then it ends right there. Do you see that? And then there's a blank space with some stuff. Does it look like it's been written on behind it? It does, doesn't it? So I've got a new word for you. You don't have a board, so I can't write anything. The word is a palimpsest. I want you to write this down. Are you taking notes? All right. P-A-L-I-M-P-S-E-S-T. Okay? Now you say it. Palimpsest? Almost. It's palimpsest. Palimpsest. 
Now let me tell you what it is, class. A palimpsest is an ancient manuscript that was used once. It was erased and used again. <coughs> In other words, they wrote over the top of what was written on there before. And it's hard to erase a manuscript. So it leaves something behind. And may I just digress another minute? Constantine von Tischendorf made his name in textual criticism by taking a palimpsest that had been discovered and translating what was underneath. Are you with me? Not what was you could read easily, but what was underneath that had been written on before. And he translated the whole thing. You talk about difficult, but he did it. And he won international acclaim as a textual critic because of that massive work. So when he set about to do something, folks, he was going to get it done. But this looks to me a little bit like a palimpsest. <coughs> but what's interesting is, in the Sinaiticus version, or manuscript, pardon me, of the New Testament, Mark 16, verses 9 through 20, is missing. Because right here, can you scroll this down just a little bit? Oh, well it doesn't show, there's a title up here. Can you get that on there for me? If he doesn't, it's still there. You can go look. There's a title, there it is. That's the title for the book of Luke. Because the book of Mark runs down here, it has a big long blank, and then it has a title for the start of the book of Luke. And that's Luke chapter 1, verse 1, right there. In Greek. But there it is. So the question is, class, what happened to Mark 16, 9 through 20? That's a big old question. And may I say, there are books written about that, which you're welcome to go read. But I wanted you to see with your own eyes that Codex Sinaiticus, one of the most famous and important copies of the New Testament, not discovered till the middle 1800s, is missing Mark 16, 9 through 20. That is a fact. Hard to argue with facts. Why it's missing is a big old question. And how much importance do you give to that is a big old question. And whether Constantine von Tischentor stole it or he's a hero for getting it into the public eye is another big old question. But it's all fascinating, isn't it? And it's part of God's preservation. All right, I think that's all we'll do for that. But there's so much more here that you could spend days and months just looking into if you wanted to. All right, back. So, Sinaiticus is one of the three most important manuscripts and so, let's now go on with our topic. The Greek New Testament, divinely inspired in its original autographs, was transmitted to us through the hands of copyists. That's a fact. The manuscripts, ancient versions, and the writings of the early Christians were all copied by hand. Every single thing until what century did I tell you? The what hundreds? The 1400s. And what was invented in the 1400s? The printing press by a famous German named Gutenberg. Anybody want to guess what's the first book ever published by a printing press? The Bible. Of course. Gutenberg. 
However, in some cases, copyists were looking at earlier copies as they made their copies. So kids, when you do this project I'm giving to you, you should have at your paper, I hope it's an animal skin, with ink. And on this side of the table should be something your parents want you to copy. In other cases, they were listening to the reading of earlier copies. How do you mass produce something that's handwritten? You have a room full of people at tables. And you have a reader who is reading the text and they're writing it. That's called a scriptorium. And that's how they mass produce handwritten copies. Okay, so how many people can you fit in this room? They're all sitting at tables, and you're reading distinctly, and they're writing. How good are you at spelling? Did you know English is the hardest language in the history of mankind to spell? English is horrendous for spelling. We have spelling bees, don't we? We have national spelling bee champions in English. Do you ever hear of them doing that in Spanish? Not at all. That's the second most popular language spoken on the face of the earth. Because Spanish is easy to spell. So is Romanian, which is the second closest language you know, to Latin. Actually, it's the first closest to Latin. But it's easy to spell. What's horrible about Romanian is the grammar. But spelling... So do you think, class, you could sit at a table and listen to me talk and I'm reading the Bible and you're copying it down and you're not making any mistakes? Would you agree that human copyists are susceptible to slips and faults of either the eye or the ears when they're making copies? Well, of course they are. And I'll tell you what's remarkable. And if you don't remember anything else I say tonight, I want you to remember this. Of the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of copies of the Bible that have been made through the centuries, handwritten, there are almost no mistakes of any significance. It's beyond belief. Now, there are mistakes, and we need to be real about that. And I'm going to show you. But overall, the picture is absolutely incredible. Those scribes were beyond belief in their accuracy, their carefulness, and I'll tell you why. They believed with all their hearts they were writing the word of God. And they didn't dare mess up. Now, were there some folks that messed up? Well, of course there were. But the accuracy with which they preserved God's word is beyond imagination. 
Scribes were also sometimes susceptible to trying to improve a text by making it agree with other passages of Scripture. I'm sorry, that's reality. And in some of these ancient manuscripts, you have little notes written in the margin, out to the side, that make a little addition or correction. That has happened occasionally. You can look at the manuscripts yourself and see it. So that did happen once in a while. But I'm telling you, when you put all that picture together, the text of the scriptures is so accurate, it's beyond any human uh, imagination. From one point of view, and an atheist would certainly pick on this, he would say that over, there are over 200,000 errors in the Greek New Testament text itself. They Believe me, they say that. If you haven't heard it yet, you probably will. Evangelistic about being an atheist. But they are. They want to convince people to be atheists and live the most ridiculous, hateful life. Why would you live like that? You have no purpose. If you're an atheist, you have no purpose. You have no more purpose or value than a roach. You know what we do with roaches in Florida? Some of them are this big. And you have no more purpose than a roach if you're an atheist. There's no purpose for your existence. You were not planned. Pardon me, I'm getting on a different sermon. But atheists will say this about the text of the Greek text of the Bible. There's 200,000 errors. You're going to trust that? How can we trust even our modern Greek text, much less English? This large number of, quote, errors is gained by counting all the variations in all the manuscripts. Here's how they do it. If there's the same slight variation in 400 manuscripts, that's 400 errors. No class, that's one error repeated 400 times. Somebody copied it. So they'd count that as 400 errors. That's not 400 errors. The copyists didn't make an error, they copied what was there. This method of counting is misleading. So I want to explain to you the proper way to count the errors, if you want to call them that. So here's the way to do it. And I'm going to leave this stuff with him if you want a copy of this, so you can be reminded. There are no variations in the manuscripts for 86% of the New Testament. Does that hit you between the eyes? I'm talking about the entire text of the New Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament. 86% of the manuscripts agree completely after being copied thousands of times over centuries. That's impossible. But it is the truth. And everybody knows it. Secondly, there are some spelling variations. About 12% of the errors are spelling variations. Those are not errors, in my opinion. And let me show you some examples. Often words in Greek copies are spelled differently over a period of years. Does spelling ever change in English? Spell me the word judgment. Is that a good spelling? Yes. How about J-U-D-G-E? Those are both correct spellings in modern English. If you look in a dictionary, you'll see them both. <coughs> but the more modern spelling drops the other E, like you spelled it. 
are they both correct? They are, just two different ways, as English evolved. The spelling changed. E-I has been interchanged for I. That's a difference, folks. But it's not an error. A-I has been exchanged for E. Bethzatha became Bethesda. Different way of pronouncing it. Pronouncing it. So that's what I mean by spelling variations. About 12% of the differences in the manuscripts are spelling variations. Well, look, I like to illustrate it this way. If my Bible in the New Testament is your template, I'm going to go here to Matthew chapter 1, and I'm going to go over here to Revelation chapter, what's the last chapter in Revelation class? 22, thank you. So here it is in my Bible. That's the pages of the New Testament. 86% of those pages in all the manuscripts are identical. Well, there's 253 pages right here. So I'm going to take out 218 of them. That's all but how many? Do your math. Come on, hurry up. I'm in a hurry. Those are identical. So you've got 35 pages of differences. Thirty and a half of those pages are spelling changes. So here's 35, so what's left? Four and a half, right? Well, that's four, and I'm not tearing my pages. So here's four and a half. The rest of those are spelling variations. Folks, that's not a problem for our text. Then, there are some minor variations. You see that? About one and a half percent. That's another 3.25 pages. So out of four and a half, how many are left? One page and a quarter. Out of 253 pages, class, there's one and a quarter pages of any significant variations. After thousands of years of copies. Beyond belief. Here are some of the minor variations. Matthew 1.18, in some versions, says the birth of Jesus Christ. In other ones, manuscripts, it says the birth of Christ Jesus. Now that's really tough, isn't it? And then another one says the birth of Jesus, and another one says the birth of Christ. That's four variations, class. Those are not errors. Those are variations. Okay? And then significant variations at about a page and a quarter. And guess what I showed you this morning? All of those were from the significant variations. The ones we talked about this morning. So, for the rest of our time tonight, and we're not looking at the clock. No fair looking. We've got to go over those briefly. Please. Significant variation. What's the first one I gave you this morning? Acts 8.37. Right? <coughs> Acts 8.37. There are some significant variations on that verse in the manuscripts and versions. Is everybody with me in what I'm saying here? The ancient copies of the New Testament have differences among them on Acts 8.37. The question is, how much? And does that verse belong in the original book of Acts? Please don't get away from me and understand what we're doing here. 
Our English versions vary on Acts 8.37. I showed you that this morning. So do the Greek versions. I mean the Greek uh, manuscripts. And the versions too. They vary some. The question is, what was in the original? That's what you've got to ask yourself. All right, so I showed you the King James and the New King James this morning. Verse 37 of Acts 8. In the King James, the old King James, <clears throat> there is no indication of any kind of problem. And I told you the reason for that is partly they did not have access to Vaticanus, Alexandrinus, and Sinaiticus. Only the three most important ancient copies of the Bible. They didn't have access to those in the 1600s. Sinaiticus wasn't even known. Vaticanus was hidden away in the Vatican. Alexandrinus was hidden away in some other museum, and they weren't allowed to use it. So you can understand that, but the New King James has a little footnote that says, N-U and M omit verse 37. <clears throat> so I said I'd tell you what that is tonight. What is N-U and M? It's new and mm. So what does that mean? Well, I'm going to get there in a minute. What's the support for this verse? There's one 6th century unsealed. Remember an unseal? It's all caps. That's the 6th century. That's the 500s that has this verse in it. There's some good minuscules that have it in it. But do you remember minuscules did not start until after the 800s? So those are not as valuable as the manuscript. And the old Latin version, which dates way back, has it in it. And, whoops, that's it. Let me go back. That's the support for Acts 8.37 in textual criticism. So the question is, is that good enough support to say that was in the original? That's the question. I'm pausing. So what does N-U and M mean? Here's what it means. The NU is the Greek text in the 26th edition of the Nestle Aland Greek New Testament. That's what N stands for. You said you use Nestle. You can get you a Nestle Greek Bible if you want. And it's one of the standard references for the Greek New Testament. Well, that's what N means. U is the third edition of the United Bible Society's Greek New Testament. So those are two of the most famous and important Greek texts that we have in our possession, that have been studied by scholars, collecting all of the evidence that we have, here's the Greek text that they say is in the original. Are you with me? What you learn is, let me go back. What you learn in the King James is that N-U omits verse 37. That Nestle and, and you, what was you, Ulan? Neither one of those have verse 37 in them. In their version of the Greek New Testament. Everybody with me? Now what about M? Well, here's what M is. M is the majority text. That's what it stands for. And it, is the, it holds that the best Greek text is based on the consensus of the majority of existing Greek manuscripts, even though many are late and none is earlier than the 5th century. It says, let's just take the majority. 
and that's what should be in it. But even M omits verse 37. I'm telling you. And what's the opposition to this verse that says it doesn't belong there? Practically all the other manuscripts and versions don't have it. No Greek manuscript earlier than the 6th century knows this reading. May I express my opinion? I'm not a Greek scholar, nor am I a biblical textual scholar, but I have studied this a lot. I think Acts 8.37 got put in later. That's what I think, that it wasn't part of the original. That's my opinion. There is some support for that text. I can't deny that. But the text for it is not strong. Now, folks, you can argue with me, but don't argue with the facts. I've told you the facts. You can draw your own conclusion. I'm coming back to that in a minute. So you're in the, you're in the realm of textual criticism. Correct. That's where I am. And that's where the scholars Exactly right. Exactly where you're at. And please understand, those scholars are basing it on physical documents you yes. can go see. Yes. This is not unreality. All right. How about 1 John 5, 7 and 8? That was the second one I gave you this morning. Well, we know that support, well, we don't know. I'm going to tell you. What's the support for these verses? As it reads in the King James. Because that's what we had you read, right? Uh, no. No, you had me, I had you read the other one. Yeah. We all were looking at the other. But King James is what I'm trying to critique. What is the support for these verses as it was in the King James? Erasmus' third edition of the Greek New Testament, which is what Tyndale used in his original translation into English. And I will tell you that Erasmus, the greatest Greek scholar of his day, refused to put that verse in his Greek New Testament until he said, if somebody can find me one manuscript that has that in it, I'll put it in. And so they found a 14th or 15th century and one from the 16th century that had it in it. And so he stuck it in. Two other manuscripts have this rendition of the verses written in the margin. You listening? The rendering in the King James. And some late Latin versions have this in it. That's the support for the King James reading of 1 John 5, 6, 7, and 8. What's the opposition? Practically all other manuscripts and versions do not have that. They have the reading in the American Standard. No Greek manuscript earlier than the 14th century knows this reading. Well, folks, that's very suspicious to me. And we're not talking about what God said. We're talking about what our copies are and which are the accurate ones. So please, we're not trying to critique the original autographs. They were inspired by God and they're perfect. The question is what's come down to us in English. And I'm telling you, the King James Version, which did not have access to a lot of this stuff, is not as accurate on this as the American Standard in terms of the facts. What about Mark 16? That was the last one we showed you this morning. 
And by the way, that's one of the longest sections of Scripture that's questionable. It's Mark 16, 9 through 20, part of God's original autograph for the book of Mark. Well, what's the opposition to these verses? The Vatican and the Sinaitic manuscripts. I showed you Sinaiticus, right? It's missing. It's also missing in the Vatican. Now, why is that? And the answer to that question is a big old question mark. I don't think anybody knows. The earliest known old copies of the old Syriac and the Latin Vulgate do not have that. They date back to the 1 and 200s. The Vulgate is the 400s. And a large number of Armenian manuscripts do not have it. What's the support for these verses? Almost all other manuscript evidence has this in it. Statement from Arrhenius in the first century show, or second century. I'm going to say, and again, I'll give you my opinion. The evidence for Mark 16, 9 through 20, that it's valid and part of the original autograph is overwhelming. The sticky wicked is Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. Why are they missing it? And my view is, there's a whole lot more going to come out about that one of these days. So there's been a lot of study done. I'm trying to figure that out. But there are some reasons why it could be missing in those two and found everywhere else. So just believe me, and you can go look for yourself. But that's the facts. But the statement of Irenaeus, is that, as you said, it's in the second century. Way back. Which is, in the 100s. Which is a, which is a strong evidence. Absolutely. Plus, it's in all the other manuscripts. That's the thing. There's a massive amount of manuscript support for those verses. So that's reality. Now, are there some others? There was a page and a quarter, right? This doesn't make up the page and a quarter. There's a few others in which there's some manuscript variation. And by the way, especially in the Gospel of John and the books of 1st, 2nd John, where some of them are. Okay? But here's the picture. I want you to get this, class. When you put all that 1.25 pages together, you have not changed one doctrinal issue in anything we teach in the Bible. Acts 8.37 doesn't teach anything you can't learn from someplace else. Are we told we have to confess Jesus Christ? Yes. Give me a passage. Romans 10, verse 10 says, For with the mouth... Confession is made unto salvation. Romans 10, 10. Jesus said, if you will confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father who is in heaven. In, what, two or three of the Gospels. That, the necessity of confession, it does not depend on Acts 8, 37, class. Even if it's not in the original. Which my judgment is, it probably isn't. Because there's not much textual evidence to support it. Well, you haven't lost a thing. And anything else I've mentioned, all of these put together, there's not one single doctrinal issue affected. Okay? That's important. And it's like 0.5% of the entire text of the New Testament that's even questionable. So, with these three great witnesses, 
The interval between the dates of the original composition and the earliest extant evidence becomes so small as to be, in fact, negligible. And the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written has now been removed. Both the authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as finally established, says Sir Frederick Kenyon, a scholar of Bible and archaeology from 1940. And the case is better today than it was in 1940. Folks, you can be confident that we have the text of the Greek New Testament. And so we can have great confidence in the text of the Greek New Testament and also the Hebrew and uh, Aramaic text of the Old which we haven't talked about. We can also have great confidence in our English versions, which are translated by large committees of scholars from different backgrounds with an accurate word-for-word -word translation. The Lord, word of the Lord endures forever. So that's my lesson. Do you feel like you were fed with a water hose? Like a fire hose? It's because you were. And it's a lot of information. But I hope it's opened a door for you to see things maybe you didn't know before, to help you use your Bible more effectively to the glory of God. That's the point. And I'm going to ask you Tuesday if your kids did the project. <laughs> It'll be a good one. Okay. Well, this lesson was not designed to tell someone how to become a Christian or what you need to do as a Christian, although we did talk about that some this morning in our second lesson. But we don't want to leave this assembly if there's someone here who wants to become a Christian. Do you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God? That's what the Bible teaches. Very clearly. Can I explain to you how he could be both God and man at the same time? He was both. He was tempted in all points like his we. That's a man. God is not tempted. He was. So he lived a perfect life as a man and as God at the same time. How do you do that? I don't know. But that's why he's unique in all of history. There is no other character in the same ballpark as Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. Have you come to believe that with all your heart? If so, let me tell you what Jesus would say to you if he were here. Because when he sent his apostles out to preach the gospel, here's what he told them. You go teach all nations. You teach them the gospel. Tell them about Jesus. And they're to believe it. And when they believe it, they're to repent of their sins. And then they're to confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Because that's the only way you'll know. And then they're to be baptized in water for the remission of their sins. That's what Jesus taught. And his disciples went everywhere doing exactly that. And that's what the book of Acts describes. So we don't want to change one bit of that. If you're here tonight and you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that's the best story ever told, and it's the truth, then you need to repent of your sins and be baptized for the remission of your sins, as Acts 2.38 says. And we'll stop everything and do that right now if you're ready. So we picked a song to sing, and I'm assuming we're going to stand up and sing it. And you come if you're ready. 91. <coughs>